Good morning, and happy Mother's Day to all you mothers. We'll, uh, we'll be thinking today about a mother's love, a mother's love. <clears throat> and we look at uh, the scriptures for, <coughs> excuse me, going to take advantage of the water over here. Thank you. Matt. We look at uh, four mothers in the scriptures to try to appreciate what a mother's love is. The first one is found in Matthew chapter 20. The passage is lengthy, but I'll just emphasize um, some points and we'll move on to the next passage. Matthew 20, verse 20, Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him, that is Jesus, with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. So first uh, trivia question. If you're uh, 15 years old and younger, you can answer it. Who were, who was the mother of Zebedee's sons? What were her sons' names? It's a hard one. I may have to increase the level of age of those who can answer the question. Yes, Eliana? Good. James and John. The mother of James and John, who were Zebedee's sons. So the mother of James and John came to Jesus with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him, from Jesus. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, grant that these two Sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left in your kingdom. The mother of James and John wanted what every other mother wants. She wanted her sons to reach the highest possible place that they could attend. And she recognized the highest possible place was on the right and left hand side of the Lord Jesus in his kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, we are able. So he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with, but to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. So, without going into too much detail, Jesus is explaining here that uh, she doesn't quite understand what she's asking for her sons, because what she, the place of honor she thinks of is not the kind of honor the world recognizes as honor. It's a place of suffering. And when the ten heard it, so this would be the other ten disciples, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. And you can understand that. They felt that these two brothers were going kind of around, you know, the stage and talking to the head of the show and trying to get a better spot for themselves than the other twelve disciples. So understandingly, the other twelve, ten disciples who do not understand for themselves what it is that is being asked here, they're pretty upset with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, 
And those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So here the Lord Jesus defines to us what is greatness, or whom shall we honor. I have here a picture of a, of a medal. That's called a Medal of Honor. And uh, the Army has its own criteria, uh, or Navy. I think the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, they all have some version of this medal. I'm not sure which of them this is. And they have their own criteria of what it is that you must do to reach a place where you deserve that special honor, special honor. But the Lord Jesus defines it to, for us here in this passage, what is it that God believes ought to be honored. And he says, whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. But Jesus is saying that it's really those who serve others that are in the place of honor. God wants us to honor those who serve, not those that have reached some level of dominions right, in this world who are the great ones. I recently learned that we have a new richest person in the world. Anybody knows who that is? All right, Eliana, will you look at my notes? I mean, sorry, Nessia, <laughs> will you look at my notes? All right. Who is the richest person in the world? Amazon, yeah. It used to be Bill Gates for many years. Uh, he was the CEO of Microsoft, and he reached you know, up to the $90 billion level before he started giving a lot of his money away. But uh, yeah, in the last year or so, he was passed by a man named Jeff Bezos, who is the CEO of Amazon, is the first man to have breached the $100 billion level. $100 billion. <laughs> who needs $100 billion? <laughs> Hopefully nobody. Uh, but uh, yeah, in this world, you know, that's the Medal of Honor. You reach the top, but not in God's book, right? In God's book, it is those who serve. And that's where I want us to turn and think about Mothers, right? Mothers are those who serve, right? And I'd like to, to look at, we'll look at three other mothers and, and think of some of the special way mothers serve. And, uh, and because of that, we ought to honor them. Now, we do want to uh, recognize here when the Lord Jesus is saying, uh, defining what greatness he, he is here, he gives himself as an example in verse 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So we want to recognize that a mother's love is not original. It actually finds its origins in God. God has a mother's love. Now God, you know, there is no God the mother. We have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But that doesn't keep God from having the kind of love a mother has 
for her children. So as we look at these examples of mothers, we're also going to think of the parallel love of God, the love of a mother. Okay, uh, so the next mother we have is just barely mentioned in the scriptures, but she is mentioned in Psalm 139, in verse 13. King David says, For you formed my inward parts, you covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. So which, which mother is this we're talking about now? Right, Nessia? Yeah, David's mother, because David is saying, you covered me in my mother's womb. David's mother. Um, I became introduced to the concept of motherhood when I became a father. <laughs> that was new for me. I think, uh, did you want to say something, Joy? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. If anybody knows her name, you can tell me later. I didn't, I didn't put that down. Um, I have uh, an image here. This is the first time I got to see my child. And uh, I don't know about you, but my wife and I, when we look at this picture, we are convinced we see our daughter smiling at us. Yeah, and uh, so that's, you know, one of the wonders of creation is that God takes a single cell in, in a mother's womb and builds it up into a fully developed human being inside of the womb. And uh, that's wonderful. And yet there's a, there's a certain price that has to be paid by the mother. For the mother, there's a sacrifice involved. The baby literally feeds on her body while he is in the womb through the umbilical cord. And that, that has an impact on the woman's body. I've, any of you heard of morning sickness? Anybody knows why it's called morning sickness? Because for my wife, it wasn't the morning. It was 24 hours a day. So I'm just curious where the morning part of morning sickness came from. But uh, so yeah, my wife, for every one of our four children, starting around the second month, she would get sick. And she had a hard time keeping her food down, even water down, um, for about two months, until about the fourth month. And then she got better. So we're thankful. We know for some ladies, it can last the whole pregnancy. Right, so that's just one example of the cost of uh, it is for a mother to, to have this wonderful thing happening inside of her, a child growing inside of her has a cost. Uh, the scripture mentioned another cost in John chapter 16, verse 21, and this is Jesus speaking to his um, disciples, using this as an illustration of the suffering that they were about to experience when he would be taken away from them and the joy they would experience when he is restored to them. He said in uh, John 16, 21, a woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. And then I was there to witness my wife's sorrow. There, there is a very serious suffering 
involved when a woman delivers a child. And that's why Jesus could refer to it, because everybody knew about it, right? It was one of those reality. Again, until you are there, you know, you don't understand, <laughs> you know, what it's like. Uh, I forget. I think it was in the last one, in Ben's case. I, I've, I've been traumatized by all of my children's deliveries. And uh, one of them, uh, I remember running out and, uh, and uh, crying out to the nurses, uh, you know, hurry up because my uh, water's wife broke. <laughs> so you could tell that, you know, things were just not going proper. But obviously it was my wife that was really suffering uh, during that time. So there's a sacrifice. Now Jesus adds in this passage, John 16, 21, he said, but as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. And I can attest to that as well. I have a picture to prove it. But uh, see if you can find that one. But uh, yeah, it's amazing, you know, uh, a mother goes through all this suffering, and yet, you know, as soon as the baby is out, and she has the baby, and she holds the baby, she is just so overjoyed, you know, as if she forgotten all the suffering that she just uh, went through. And uh, it, uh, it speaks to me of, of really one of God's miracles, which is a love of a mother, which... Uh, I believe is like everything else in this life, something given to us by God. God gives a mother this uh, special love for her child that uh, she will use, he will use, to bring the child to, to, uh, to adulthood because a mother's love doesn't stop at that point. He'll have to carry her through to bring the child to, to a stage when he no longer needs his mother. So with that, I wanted to think a little bit about God's love uh, in this, or the, the parallel we have in God's love uh, for this. So just like we are born physically into this world, there is a spiritual birth into God's family. We see that in John chapter 3. Uh, again, it's a lengthy passage, and I'll just try to touch on the major points. We won't go in depth into it. It says in John chapter 3, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So Nicodemus seemed to be interested in knowing more about God, and so he comes to Jesus. Jesus answered and said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born? So Jesus said, well, you have to be born again. It's one of the things that's going to have to happen for you to know God. And Nicodemus is confused about it. How can a man be born again? How can a man be born again? Jesus answered him, verse 5, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit 
is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. So Jesus clarifies this is not being born physically a second time. This is a spiritual birth and it is the work of the spirit of God. And Nicodemus is still confused about it. Verse 9, Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? How can I be born again? How can uh, the Spirit of God uh, make me born again? Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man, who is in heaven. All right, so up to now, Jesus is pointing out that there are some issues in Nicodemus' understanding and the fact that Jesus came with God's message. Now Jesus will really give the answer of how a person is born again, verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, to understand what Jesus is saying, you have to be familiar with an Old Testament story where the children of Israel were crossing the wilderness or the desert to get to the promised land, the land of Israel, but they were complaining against God because they felt God wasn't providing for them uh, the right kind of diet or enough food or enough water. They, they seemed unhappy being in that situation. And after many, many times of their complaining, God is going to, um, as we might call it uh, in my family, apply the rod of correction. All right, you guys really need to get over this complaining business. And he sends serpents. And the serpents bite the people. And these are poisonous serpents, and the people start dying as a result of these snake bites. And they start crying out to God, and they say, you know what? You're right. We're wrong. We shouldn't be complaining. You've provided for us. You've taken care of us through the wilderness. You're taking us to the promised land. We had no business complaining. And God tells Moses, okay, Moses, I want you to put a serpent on a, a pole, and then lift up the pole, and whoever looks at the serpent will be made well. Right? So it's a very easy to apply cue. It's not limited. We don't have to go around giving people shots. Right? People just have to look at this serpent lifted up, and, and I will heal them of the poison of the serpent. And so Jesus says, Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Well, who is the Son of Man? Son of Man is Jesus. How was Jesus lifted up? He was lifted up on a cross. He was crucified. And as he was crucified, God made him the uh, uh, substitutional uh, payment for our sin. So I have sinned against God. I deserve to be judged because of my sins. God took my sins and he placed them on the Lord Jesus on the cross. And as Jesus died on the cross, he was paying for my sins and he was paying for your sins. And so what Jesus is saying, just as the people, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, well, now Jesus is lifted up on the cross, right? 
Verse 15, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So those who looked at the serpent placed on the pole, they received physical life. Their life was restored. The poison was purged out of their body so that they would not die from the poison of the serpent. Now whoever looks at Jesus in faith, right, believing that there on the cross Jesus paid the penalty for their, for their sins, Jesus is saying that person will not perish but have eternal life. God has a place for us after we die. There is a place that was prepared for Satan and his demons, and that's the lake of fire, where everybody will end up who is following Satan. But he prepared another place in heaven for all of those who will trust in the Lord Jesus, a place of eternal life. And so Jesus here was offering, and he said, as soon as a person believes that, he is born again. Right? This is the new life. And uh, in uh, Isaiah 53, there's an interesting passage that refers to this. Isaiah 53, verse 10 and 11 says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. The Lord being God, Jesus being the one bruised or suffering. He, God, has put him, the Lord Jesus, to grief on the cross. When you, God, make his soul, Jesus' soul, an offering for sin, he, Jesus, shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. His seed refers here to those who believe on the Lord Jesus. They are if you were, if you were the, the result of Jesus' suffering. And then he adds in verse 11, he, Jesus, shall see the labor of his soul. How was Jesus' soul put to labor? Well, on the cross. That was the labor of Jesus' soul. And be satisfied. And that's really the amazing thing. As... Uh, a mother is satisfied, right, after her child is born. She went through all this suffering, and yet when she sees her newborn baby, she is satisfied. Yes, it was a, a terribly painful experience, but, but I now have my child, and I am satisfied. I am satisfied. The same way the Lord Jesus, in spite of all of his suffering on the cross, when he sees you, or me, putting our trust in him and receiving a new life, a relationship with God. You know what Jesus says? I am satisfied. I am satisfied. My suffering was worth it because you will be with me in heaven for all of eternity, and I am satisfied. Amazing love. Okay, our next mother is found in the book of 1 Samuel. Chapter 1, uh, a well-known story of uh, Hannah. Verse 9, so Hannah arose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord. 
And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. Now, Hannah was in anguish for the reason that she wasn't able to have children. And uh, so, in verse 11, then she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of my life, and no razor shall come upon his head. So Hannah makes here a very unusual vow, and she tells God, God, if you will give me a child, I will give the child to you. Right? Which, uh, you know, is an amazing thing for a mother to be willing to do. Then God will skip the next few verses. God answers her prayer, and he gives her a child. And so Hannah wants to fulfill her portion of the bargain, but not right away. Verse 22, it says, But Hannah did not go up. She didn't go up to the tabernacle the following year. For she said to her husband, Not until the child is weaned, then I will take him that he may appear before the Lord and remain there forever. And that's what I want to focus on as we're thinking about this particular mother. She said, not until the child is weaned. So she, she, she's willing to fulfill her bargain. She's willing to give a child to the Lord, but she says he's not ready yet. He needs to be weaned. Now, usually we will use the word weaned to mean get a child past the stage of breastfeeding, right? Uh, if she would have brought a newborn babe to Samuel uh, and gave, sorry, to Eli, thank you, I appreciate the correction. My children really keep me in my place. And, uh, uh, you know, what would Eli do? The child needs to be fed, right? Someone has, to, you know, he'll have to go find the nursemaid, right? I mean, it's going to be a burden on, on Eli, right? And so she said, not yet. I need to first win the child. Now, it's very clear. I think I have here kind of a picture of trying to, you know, suggest when she brought uh, Samuel to him. I mean, you can tell, you know, he, and of course, this is an artist's rendition. This is not really the way Samuel looked. But the main point, he must have been a child of a certain age that could take care of himself. Right? Again, otherwise, he would just be a burden on Eli. Right? So Samuel must have reached an age in which you know, nobody had to nurse him, nobody had to change his diapers, nobody had to spoon-feed him. Right? He, he was able to take care of himself. In fact, he must have reached a certain point where he could follow commands and, and do things that would actually be helpful for Eli, right? to, the, to the high priest. Right? I mean, must be the case. And uh, so when she means not until the child wins, she means really getting the child through all those difficult stages uh, you know, in, in a child's life before he is able to, to be with other people and doesn't really need his mother with him uh, anymore. Still, an amazing thing for her to do. So I was thinking of some of those things. I have a picture of my own kids going through some of these stages. You know, again, yeah, it is. That is you, Joey. And Nessia, that's correct. Um, you know, there's, 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 there's a lot of work 
that goes to get a child to the point Samuel must have been in. And uh, it's the work that typically only a mother can do. Only a mother's love would go through. Now, I mean, th these children look pretty cute, right? And they're smiling and maybe like, oh yeah, I don't mind, I'll feed them. But, you know, this is not like a single time experience, right? I mean, you have to do it several times a day, every day, possibly for years, right? I mean, before the child is really at a point where can they really take care of themselves. Um, you know, I had a, you know, a very cute niece. You know, she came to my house a couple of weeks ago and, you know, I held her in my arms. I love this girl. Her name is Maya, by the way. Uh, but, you know, one day she was in the playroom and, uh, you know, I went to the playroom and I could tell by the aroma that, uh, you know, she, she needed to be changed. And so I went to her mother and said, you know, I think Maya needs to be changed. I didn't offer my services, right? And uh, that's something, again, a mother goes through, you know, in our society for two, three years before, you know, the child is, is trained to the point he or she doesn't need it anymore. So it's something that, again, I think requires a mother's love to love a child, even at a moment where a child may not be in its most lovable form. Right, in, in, a, in a time when the child needs to be cleaned up. So again, I was thinking of a, a parallel for us. In First uh, John 1, 8 through 9, it says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So it's good to remember this is written to believers. Right? So sometimes we might think, okay, God, you know, uh, wants perfect people. He wants holy people, and that's true. And so we think, well, in order to be God's child, I must be perfect, I must be holy. And they will actually put this barrier before themselves, and until they're perfect, until they're holy, until they have no more sin in their life, they don't want to claim to be a child of God. They don't think that they're really Saved, And yet that's not what the scripture says. Here Paul, is actually John, this is John the Apostle, and he talks about we, the Apostle, we believers. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. We are like these children that often soil themselves. Right? We have sin on ourselves. But the wonderful verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And here God, like a mother, is willing to take us with all our dirt, right? And cleanse us every time. As a believer, I can come to him again and again and again and confess my sin. Lord, I messed up again. And, uh, and I know I did, right? And it affects me in my fellowship with him. I feel dirty. And he... Praise his name, he cleanses me and restores me to fellowship with himself, just like a mother does. So, just like a mother doesn't throw away her child because he soils himself, she cleans him up. So God doesn't throw us away, right? Once we're his children, once we've been born again, we're in his family, we have trusted in the Lord Jesus and his atoning payment for us. Then we're in God's family and he will take us and clean us as many times as we need cleaning. His love never runs out, just like a mother's. Okay, the last mother we will look at is in the book of Proverbs. 
this is a mother that is not often talked about. Proverbs verse 30, sorry, chapter 31 <coughs> says, The word of King Lemuel, the utterance which his mother taught him. We don't know much about this king. In fact, I'm not sure if he appears anywhere else in the scripture except in this passage. But uh, here at the end of the book of Proverbs, uh, he has recorded what his mother taught him. Right? So this is something his mother taught him, and she taught him that so well that he has it memorized. Okay? So here are some of the value of memorization. And this is what she taught him. What, my son, and what, son of my womb, and what, son of my vows, do not give your strength to women, nor your ways to that which destroys kings. And let me pause here, because I'm sure women in the audience might be offended. But uh, what, what he, she means by that, so she is talking to her son, and uh, she is trying to steer him in the right way. Now, Lemuel is a king, which means his behavior will have a major impact on the nation of Israel. As a king, if he follows God, and he does his responsibility as a good king, many blessings will come to the nation of Israel. They will reap the reward of it. If he is not a good king and he makes foolish mistakes, it will affect many other people in a negative way. So she is very strongly here. What, my son? son? She is very concerned about how he will carry himself out. When he says, do not give your strength to women, what she means is don't spend your time and effort chasing women, right? That's not the way a king ought to live, right? In our society, it's interesting, many of the great and mighty, even in, in, the, you know, in the Bible you find, have fallen because of that, right? That isn't what, you know, a king should be doing. In fact, no one should, right? I mean, there's, a man should have one wife, and that should last, Right? for a lifetime. That's the goal. So to spend his time, a king to spend his time chasing after women is detrimental to himself and to really the whole nation. Know your ways to that which destroys kings. Right? Don't go in a direction that will destroy uh, you and will destroy really any king that follows it. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine nor for princes intoxicating drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the justice of all the afflicted. So the other way that would destroy a king is if he, if he is uh, spending his time drinking, right? Trying to satisfy his desire for, you know, alcohol or the effects of alcohol. Uh, in our society, we have you know, many other drugs that will carry you down, down, down. And, uh, and his mother is so concerned for him. She says, don't follow that path, right? It will destroy you, and it will destroy the nation if you follow that. Why will it destroy the nation? Well, if you drink, you will forget the law. You will forget God's justice and how you're supposed to rule 
and you will pervert the justice of all the afflicted. As people come to you needing your help, you're not going to give them help. Why? Because you're drunk, right? And you're thinking about yourself. Open your mouth for the speechless, verse 8, in the cause of all who are appointed to die. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and plead the cause of the poor and needy. So what stands here for me about uh, Lemuel's mother, which I'm trying to to kind of bring into a general mother's love, is she had a vision for her son. She saw what her son could become. And she wanted him to attain that goal. He could be a king that brings righteousness to Israel and uh, and be a, a, a powerhouse for God. Right? And that's what she wanted to see in him. Now, not all mothers have a child that will be the king of Israel, right? But it's something that's coming to all mothers is they will have a vision for their child. They see a potential, right? We see this squawking thing, and they see a potential. You know what my son can do? You know what my daughter can do, right? And they push their children in that direction. I have a mother in the audience today, and uh, I uh, remember that that my, and I verified with her to make sure my memory wasn't flawed, uh, that my education was very important to her. And uh, similar to my own son, Joey, I had difficulty writing. And, um, and so my mother, not being deterred and having that vision firmly in her mind, she helped me do my homework by starting to write for me. And then said, okay, Noad, now it's your turn. You need to write the next word or you need to write the next sentence. And like that, little by little, she encouraged my writing and got me to the point where I could do my homework by myself. Uh, I remember other occasions, but uh, the, the point is, it was very important for my mother that I will achieve that vision she had for me. She saw me as a person who could be successful, a person that could be happy, and, and that depended on my education. And there is a fr- the fruit of all my mother's work. Little she knew that she was preparing me, or maybe she knew exactly what she was preparing me uh, to graduate uh, from college. So uh, how is that a parallel of the Lord? Well, the Lord also has uh, a vision for us, right? Uh, we sometimes don't appreciate what, uh, what that vision is in uh, Revelation 1, <clears throat> second half of verse 5 says, To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Who is that? Jesus, Jesus good. Uh, and, and so sometimes we stop there and say, Well, that's wonderful. He, he washed me from my sins. And now I'm going to heaven. And we just stop there. That's good enough for me. Right? And it should be, but that's not where the verse stops. And has made us kings and priests to God, to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So it says here, Jesus didn't just save us so we can go to heaven. He saved us to make us kings and priests. He has uh, a place for us to rule in heaven. I'm not just going to be there, I'm going to be ruling in heaven. 
And like a priest, I'll be able to approach God and offer worship. And, uh, and uh, at this present time, I can act as a mediator for God by, by telling other people about him that don't know him, by praying uh, to him on behalf of others. So I have an exalted position, right? And God, having saved me, had in his vision uh, the full potential of what I can be in him, right? And he works to bring that about, just like a mother will work with a child to bring about the child's full potential. So will, um, so God works in us. And he refers to it in Romans chapter 28. This is our last verse for today. Sorry, Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. We love uh, saying this first. We like thinking of the fact that God is working all things together for good for us. Uh, but we need to remember the context of the passage is actually suffering, right? Uh, believers suffer in this life. Uh, these are children of God here on earth, suffering here on earth. And in that context, it says we know that God is actually working all things together for good. Even the things we suffer are being done for our good. And he explains it here in verse 29, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. What is it that God had in his vision for me when he saved me? It was nothing short of the perfection of his son. He made me a child of God, and he wants me to become just like his son, the Lord Jesus. Nothing short of that will satisfy God when it comes to my behalf. And to bring it about, he will allow hardships to come into my life because it's through these hardships that God is changing me and molding me and making him more like me. One of the stories I didn't tell about my mother and her concern for my education is uh, uh, one, one uh, evening I remember uh, going to bed and my mother coming and asking me if I practiced my recorder. So you see, Joy, you're not the only one who has to practice his recorder. And I, I said, no, no, I didn't practice. My mom pulled me out of bed, took me outside, because we were in a children's house in the kibbutz. Come ask me about it later if you don't understand what that means. And uh, didn't want me to disturb everybody else with my fine playing. And so there I was sitting outside, cold at night, playing, practicing my recorder. Why? Because my mother didn't love me? No, because she loved me so much. Right? She wasn't willing for me to come short of that vision of that goal that she had for me. And so God loves us so much, he will even work through suffering in our life to make us more like his son. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you loved us so much like a mother's love, Lord, and uh, yet uh, even greater. Lord, we thank you. We pray for everybody here who hasn't known that love that you have for them, that they might come and enjoy it. We pray for uh, our uh, uh, mother, Mother's Day luncheon, Lord, that you might bring it all together, that it might be blessed by you, both in our 
uh, fellowship as well as uh, ministering to our body's needs. We pray for you to honor the rest of this service. In Jesus' name, amen.